I'm Verite, and you're listening to Anatomy of an Artist, a podcast about people, the art they create, and the business behind their art. Hello, and welcome back to Anatomy of an Artist. My guest this week is LPX, the most recent project of Lizzie Plappinger. Lizzie has lived so many lives in the music industry. She's the co-founder of Neon Gold Records, and she is one half of the duo Miss Mister. In this conversation, we got to meander around all of her roles in the music industry and how they've informed her decision to move forward independently. It is so rare that an artist gets to see the music industry from so many different angles, and Lizzie offers a unique perspective on how to balance being an artist and building a business. This is a rare episode where Lizzie and I got to catch up in person. No, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry I had to reschedule. I was sick as shit. I saw you posted on Instagram, but it wasn't COVID. It wasn't COVID. But a part of me is like, how could it not have been? I got tested four times. So, so it definitely wasn't COVID. So it definitely wasn't COVID. And they, and they were like, look, like you're really sick. You basically have like the flu and bronchitis. Yeah. So they put me on a lot of shit, but it was, it was brutal. It was like one of those situations where I really hit, like, I'm very autonomous. I'm very happy being like living alone, being single. Like I was like so sick. I could barely take care of myself. It was just like. One of those moments where you're like, oh, this is fucking hard to like be like a solo bean. Yeah, I can imagine. It was brutal. And it- How important is your sense of home right now? I've seen on Instagram, you painted your mirror orange and you're doing a lot of like oh, home decoration. Dude, it's getting so cuckoo in there and I'm <laughs> loving it. Like it's, it's definitely like meditative for me doing it, but it's also like nice to have like it's nice to look at something and like see the amount of time you've put into it. You know, yeah. that's like always like a problem I have with music a little bit. I mean, obviously like, I think there's like a magic to like, this song didn't exist a couple hours ago. And like, now it does like you, like you pull music out of thin air. I think that's so like genuinely magic. But when you're painting, especially like a piece of furniture, it's just like, I can see all the hours and like minutes that I've spent like developing something. And then I get to like live with it as an appendage to my like world. Yeah. I'm loving it. Your world is so colorful. It's insane. Yeah. And it's like turning up. It's like going, it's getting brighter. <laughs> it's just like the darker winter gets. A hundred percent. The yeah. more we turn up the volume. That makes me really happy. Um, so you're ride or die New York, kind of like me. I'm ride or die. And I feel more ride or die than ever. Same. Actually. I feel like I've doubled down. People are like, I'm outie, I'm going upstate or I'm moving to California. And I'm like, wow. As if I didn't already know that this city was everything. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. This is like so me. It's crazy. I think that for me being here, especially at a time like this, like I can be really antisocial. Mm-hmm. I feel like you and I love New York almost yeah. for like opposite reasons. <laughs> right. I love New York because I'm so antisocial and I can leave my door and automatically be in things without yeah. actually ever having to interact with anyone. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, especially in a pandemic, I, you can go out and there's a, a vibrancy. And the other day, I mean, not the other day, probably like two weeks ago, that last nice day. Yeah. 
was walking around and every three blocks was a band and yeah. I don't know, some sort of music and some sort of gathering all outside, all masked. Yes. And so just the energy here feels amazing. I think it's super comforting too. Did you always want to live in New York? You know, it's so funny. I didn't, you know, I'm born and raised in London. Uh, and I knew I'd go, I knew I was going to go to college in the States because I really didn't like the British school system because, and I went to an international school, but like the British school system, it sort of like narrows down what you study so that by the time you go to college, which they call university, you basically go in with your major. So I knew I was going to go to college in the States so that I could go to like a liberal arts college and take everything. And ideally I would go back to London afterwards. Like that was, it was always sort of my plan that I would like build a life in London. And I only even started coming to New York because my best friend, Derek was at NYU. Um, and I'd come in for shows. And then when we started the label, I was coming in and out of the city all the time, uh, for artist meetings or management meetings and going to shows. And it was sort of through neon gold that I fell in love with New York And then when I graduated and the label had started, like I was supposed to go back to London and Derek was going to stay in New York because we were pretty much like equally working with both British artists and American artists. Yeah. And I decided to stay in New York ultimately because I was like, ah, I just like feel like I need to get my bearings and I love this city. But also I was like, you know, Derek, you and I have been running like this business as like a long distance relationship for two years. Let's see what it's like for us to both be here. And, uh. Then I never left. Then I just completely fell in love with New York. And I was like, oh, this is like the first time I've really felt like a city is reflective of like my personality. In a way, like I love London and London is home actually, but I always felt like an outsider because I'm, I I don't know, it's like a third culture kid. It's like I'm too American for it, but I was too English for the States. But New York is such like a weird hodgepodge of everything. It just like suddenly didn't matter. Yeah, you can fit in anywhere here. Yeah. My cousins are the same. They're American, but grew up in London. Yeah. And so they have a similar identity crisis. One of them identifies more as British and the other one identifies as like more of American. Yeah. When you were younger, what was your idea of success? My idea of success? Like, where did you think that you were going to end up? I really wanted to be Flashdance. (laughs) (laughs) Like... Truly, I watched that movie. Now I really wanted to be a dancer, like when I was really, really little. That was the dream. So I really just wanted to dance. It, like it definitely wasn't attached to ideals of like money or having like a nice house or having jewelry. Just in my mind, as a kid or like a young teenager, I was like, if I got to dance every day for a living, that would be success. Which is so cute. That's such. I mean, so cute. <laughs> Not to be like degrading to myself, condescending to myself, but. That's so pure. Like, I love that, that I just thought the idea of being able to do the thing that I loved most was winning. And then as I got older and, you know, there was a time when I wanted to be like a studio artist and I wanted to do like sculpture and light design. And then it became clear I wasn't going to do dance. And then music really became my passion and the label became, you know, my life. And then art, like being an artist became my life. It's cool because I actually do feel like that, like, purity of success of, like, honestly, the fact that I get to do this every day and it's my source of income, that, like, that feels like a win, you know? Oh, yeah. 
Absolutely. When you, I read in an interview that when you were younger, you kind of saw three different types of women represented in the music industry. Did you see a lane for yourself as a musician? Because I know you started a little bit later. Yeah, I started, I mean, I I honestly never thought I was going to be a musician. Just It like wasn't even really like an aspiration or dream I had, or not like seriously. I definitely like, I did sort of like write songs as a kid and my family would always go on these hikes. You know, we lived in London, but we had a car. And so we'd drive to like Wales and Scotland and Ireland and the Lake District if we'd like go on hikes. And I remember like splitting away from my parents and running ahead of them so that I could like sing loudly, like as we were walking, because I could feel like isolated in this like big sublime space. So I, obviously there was a piece of me that always enjoyed that, but it wasn't what I envisioned. So by the time I was an artist or like Miss Mister was coming together, I didn't feel like someone like me existed. And I don't mean that in an arrogant way. I mean it in that it felt just so unusual that I had done the business before being an artist. And we were coming in as this indie act with pop aspirations who didn't feel like pop was a dirty word. And we would go into these meetings where I feel like otherwise women or artists just like weren't given a lot of control. And off the bat, I was given a crazy amount of control. Um, I feel like that's changed for the positive, like both for men and women in the industry. Like I feel like artists are now like you expect them to be like fully realized, fully realized yeah, and to be doing all the bits, but it wasn't, it just wasn't like that. Like, 10 years ago. So I felt like I was in a unique position and that felt special about that project. And I didn't feel like I had had role models of at least other women who had done that, but maybe that's like lack of education. I don't know. Well, I think it's just a a shift in the industry because now as an artist, you know, at least entering into the label system, like you are expected to have a fully realized vision and you're Mm -hmm. kind of presenting a finished product to this entity who is going to help you take it to the next level. But your introduction to the music industry was obviously through neon gold and, and starting a record label. What was your impression of record labels as you were starting neon gold? I, I was just fascinated by record labels. Like, There for me, like there was a difference between the indie labels and the major labels. And I looked like because of like growing up in England, there are other indie seven inch vinyl record labels like Young and Lost Club and Chess Club. And they were run by kids and they threw indie nights. And I just thought like, I just thought that was so cool. I had no feelings of like, uh, I don't know, like icky label feelings or like, you know, ugly industry or capitalist. There was like, it was only like charm and intrigue. And like, I just thought it was so sexy. I thought everything about it was just so cool. And the major label system, similarly, like I know that there's such most artists understandably have a chip on their shoulder. Like, you know, major labels are disgusting, but I was sort of always really interested in like how the machine worked, like the artistry of how like major labels work, like when all systems are go and globally they're all united and there are teams all over the world working on one project and you're building a campaign and 
Florence and the Machine is like one of my favorite artists. And I remember when that album came out, or when Lungs came out, I was like fascinated with her, but I was also fascinated in like what label she was a part of, like who was her A&R and like how they built the campaign. I just, I've always been sort of charmed and fascinated by like the mechanics of how this industry work. And as I've gotten older, like some of, obviously some of that shine has like worn off and you see like the holes or cracks within the system. But ultimately, like, I like that there are more and more sort of like mechanisms within this industry being built to help so many different kinds of artists get to where they're going. Just feels like there are more options now than ever, but I'm just always interested in like the number of lanes and options for how this all can work. If that makes sense. I don't know if that sounds super heady. Absolutely. And I think that we have experienced kind of a renaissance in the number of options that an artist Mm -hmm. has currently to build a project, build a business and and get their music and their art distributed. Mm -hmm. And what I find really interesting, you mentioned like a lot of people have a chip on their shoulder about major labels. And I feel like that's something that I've never had necessarily. I also don't have it with like the Spotify's, these mm-hmm. like big Goliaths that, you know, are inherently probably not doing these right things in these certain areas, totally. but I recognize it as like a reality of the marketplace. Uh-huh, and totally. so I'm similar where I want to understand them and figure out how to participate with them in a way that's genuine mm-hmm. so that I can build enough of a platform to maybe affect some sort of meaningful change. Totally. But like, I know I can't do that if I'm not, like participating within that system at all. Totally. I And I, I feel the same. I'm like, for all the flaws that I discover in the system, like you hope that you'll be like a beacon for change, but you have to be in the system to understand what's not working to figure out like what should be working better. Yeah. And it's like one of the reasons that like, you know, Miss Mister was signed to Columbia and Neon Gold is distributed through Atlantic Records, but I chose to do LPX as an independent artist because I was like, I've had experience now on like both sides of what it's like to be at a major label and work as an independent label, but I don't know what it's like to be a fully independent artist. Yeah. And, you know, the lessons I've learned in doing this completely independently are just as valuable as my time and all those other companies. Yeah. I don't know. I, I find it like really fascinating how it all overlaps. And it is cool, like to your point that now more than ever, like we, we didn't have as many options even a couple of years ago, you really, you could do it independently or did it with an indie label or um, you did it with a major. But now like, you know, YouTube like has a label and Fader has a, la- like there's just like so many other ways to get support. And I don't think there's any like right or wrong way. I think the all the issues I have with the industry ends up coming down to like transparency. Transparency of like long-term commitments. And like the the benefits and rewards and who's getting them. Like that's where the issues are. And I wish that more young artists had like transparency about like contracts and stuff like that. I think that's where like shit gets murky and dicey. No, absolutely. And I feel like you are an artist who has the benefit of having so many vantage points. Like you said, you, you know, founded a record label. Mm -hmm you've been signed to a major label and now you're currently independent. So I guess I want to like take it back to the transition from neon gold to miss mister. Mm -hmm. What was it like kind of 
crossing that barrier from behind the scenes business to kind of participating as an artist and a front woman? It was really stressful, to be honest, because I was so hyper aware and clued in of the questions and perspectives of the industry. So I was just like so self-aware of like what the courting looks like of a new artist or even, mm. even something like South by is a perfect example. I've been going to South by for like mm. for years, like maybe like 10 years. And especially as like neon gold, like, you know, we're running around the shows and we're watching every band and we're in between, we're taking meetings and we're drinking all day and we're partying all night. And it's, South by Southwest was like summer camp for, to like be an a and I was like, this is dope. I get to like meet labels from all over the world. I get to see all these international bands. Like it's so fun, I think. And maybe that was part of like me dipping in at like the right age where I wanted to be out all night and partying. Like it just felt yeah. like so fantastical and amazing. It was also the golden age of South it, yes, by Southwest. I guess, yeah, I guess that's true. It's like that, that is that perfect time. It timing. was really special and it wasn't as corporate. So, you know, you felt like you were just like, jumping into these like house parties mixed with proper venues. And you felt like you were really discovering things before things arrived on the blog and told you what to see. Like, you know, everything about it felt so special. And I remember the first South Bay I did just as comparison as Miss Mister. And it was a fucking nightmare. (laughs) It was like, (laughs) as an artist, you're like, what? I have to perform three shows a day and like nobody's watching and nobody cares. And like, sometimes people are there and sometimes they're not. And I have to lug my gear all over the city and I can't drink because I'm already so nervous about my voice. And then you're doing three shows in a day and I can't keep my voice. But in between you're taking like pivotal, important meetings about like festival slots or press interviews, like the pressure shift was so crazy. And, and what was cool about the experience of coming to it from the label side and then being the artist was from the label side, it's so easy when you're like writing to-do lists for like what you think artists should be doing. And then to be living it as the artist firsthand of like, oh fuck, the actual work it takes, yeah. like one foot in front of the other is such a grind. And I just previously had not fully like understood what that meant. I'm so grateful for the understanding that both perspectives have given me. And I think at the beginning of Miss Mister, the fact that it's predominantly a perspective of the industry sort of ruined the experience for me. Uh And then once I sort of came into my own as an artist and realized how special that was and how much I actually held the chips and could navigate, then my industry of of the industry like changed. Well, I guess it takes the silver lining away because I've now talked to a lot of people about this who have been you know, entering into these relationships a bit disillusioned, mm-hmm. right? They feel like they're being promised the world mm-hmm. and then essentially roped into a deal that doesn't necessarily treat them fairly. Yeah. And then they feel like dropped essentially, yeah. literally or figuratively. Mm-hmm. And so I guess when you were signing that first contract with Miss Mister, mm-hmm. do you feel like you had a leg up in the negotiation of that? Just like, from a knowledge perspective? For sure. For sure. I mean, to be completely transparent, like the Miss Mr. Deal we signed was very small monetarily. Yeah. Um, and that was because Max and I had made the entire, we made Secondhand Rapture for $500. Like we yeah. made it on a keyboard and a computer and a microphone in Max's closet. We, when we signed with Columbia, we had already delivered the record. We just needed to pay to get it mixed. 
And I knew from my experience with Neon Gold that if we sign a small deal enough to like get this record to what we want and, and a, a commitment of like marketing budget and touring budget, like to give the money to the places it really needs and enough advance for us to live, but small enough so that we're not immediately in the hole and it's easy for us to make our money back. We're going to look like a huge win to the label. Yeah. And that will make us a priority. And once we're a priority, we're going to get way more support. I mean, it's just like a self-fulfilling thing. I mean, I always tell artists like, I honestly feel differently now, but at that time I would have told everyone to take a really sort of just like very reasonable small deal so that you could recoup as soon as possible, in which case you could get your bonus and, you know, whatever, all the things that come with that. So, yeah, I felt really strong about the negotiation process and that plan worked. Like we very easily, very quickly recouped our deal, um, which made the label money, which made us money. Like, and we were able to channel the funds from them because essentially a, a, a label should be treated as a bank. Absolutely. Um, we ended up getting the funding to put towards the things that we really cared about, which was, you know, the videos and the aesthetics and the mixing and the mastering, you know, anything that we weren't capable of like doing ourselves. Um, so that was a really positive experience. That perspective I think is so, so important. Um, and it's definitely something I've obviously had a different journey, but that core perspective of, Growing at the pace that you're actually mm-hmm. growing, I think is really important. And so if you're just starting out, there is such a benefit to only taking an investment that you know you can recoup mm-hmm. because it's good for your head and it's good for the partners that you work with. Mm-hmm. And I think so often, you know, when you talk about the disillusionment of biting off more than you can chew and feeling like you're not a priority within a system. Mm-hmm. It is so true that like, it's because people are signing these million dollar deals and the label is spending that first hundred grand. And if they're not recouping that first hundred grand, it's a bad business decision for them to continue totally. throwing money at it. And it's why so many things sign crazy deals and they put out one song and the one song doesn't work. And then the artist is dropped and you're like, what? Like, I don't know. I mean, now, like, I feel like labels are making so much money from the DSPs. Like, we're in a different landscape of, like, there's just a lot more money flying around. And and part of me is, like, yeah, get that cash grab where you can because if you're not going to be fairly compensated for your work that the label is going to be getting tons of money off, um, then you should get as much money up front as you can. But it does feel like an impossible place to build from. Um, well, it's the top even, even as a mental game, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I think a lot of people sign like huge deals and they're like, they think they're done. Like, that's it. You know, there's something really tactful about just taking what you need so you can push that further. It's all a business at the end of the day. Well, and I think this idea of artists being businesses, you know, sometimes gets met with a bit of distaste because it's music and it's art. Uh, yeah. And, right. And there's a purity to that and we shouldn't mix you know but you should be fucking paid for your work you should be paid for your work so that you can live your life and keep making art yeah I think that once you inject once you inject money into art it's it 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 changes its DNA totally right and it completely changes the nature of what you're doing and so I don't have I don't think I really have a resentment towards 
the music business because it's a business yeah. and everybody's looking out for their bottom line, right? Spotify is looking out for their bottom line. Do I think that they can do a better job, mm-hmm. you know, fairly compensating songwriters and artists? Yes. But like, I'm also looking out for my bottom line. You're totally. looking out for totally. your bottom line. And so there is this sense that we also need to respect the true nature of what it is to run a business. Mm-hmm. I wish, man, like I've never even taken an economics class, which <laughs> is, I don't really feel like I'm a regretful person, but I do sort of regret that. And I wish that in school, not that they really, they didn't teach home ec and my school growing up, but like, I wish they taught you like taxes and basic accounting and stuff like that in school. Like yeah. everyone should have a base level understanding of money and contracts before they engage in business in any industry. Like it's where people get tripped up and where people get fucked over. I mean, I think I know your answer to this, but how important do you think that business literacy is for an artist stepping into the industry? I think it's really important, but honestly, some people just aren't built that way and their mind isn't. And honestly, I don't think it's something I'm very good at. Something I deeply admire about you. I think you have an incredible head for it and you're so organized. I mean, I feel like I come to you with questions all the time. Like it's, I really admire that about you. I'm not great at it. I'm organized and I've learned a lot along the way. So I think that I wish I had more and I wish, I wish it for every artist that enters this industry. But if you aren't capable or it's just like not how your brain works, then hire someone and pay them to take on that role. Yeah. Um, And surround yourself with people who have the skills that you don't, but know that it's something, it's a conversation you can't ignore. Yeah. It's, it's funny because I, I have been good on the business side, but I also recognize where my capability in that has held me back. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's kind of similar to you signing to Columbia, but like, feeling the pressure because you know the inner workings of the thing. And I think that sometimes my knowledge of the inner workings of the business of my project get me in my head and they make me stressed. And then it adds a layer of complexity to creation and collaboration and all of these different things. So I think. And that really sucks to be like, oh, fuck, I really want to collab with that person, but like no shade, but I can't pay what their fee is going to be or the advance that they need or. I want to tour all over the country and I want to fantasize about what that tour looks like and who I take and how I build the set and what I do for merch. And it's like, oh, I can't afford any of that. Like there's something beautiful about creating within limitations and parameters, but it's hard. It's it's hard when those parameters start like negatively dictating the scope of the creativity. Yeah, I do think everybody has their own parameters, whether it is, you know, you're too Mm business-minded or not Mm business-minded enough, both have positives and both have consequences. Mm -hmm. And so I think probably for artists just starting out, it is figuring out what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses, and what are you going to do about them? Totally. What do you think the greatest benefit to you signing to Columbia was with Miss Mister? Man, I mean, honestly... I don't have enough good things to say about that experience. Like truly hand over heart, like it was a beautiful experience. I was lucky in that um, I had a relationship with people in the building already through Neon Gold. So I was 
You know, I was really close with my PR. I was really close with my product manager. I was really close with the head of marketing, you know, the head of A&R, the company, you know, loved me. I was in the building so much. I had so much FaceTime with everyone talking about other artists and talking about what was happening, not even having to do with Miss Mister. I just had great relationships. Um, and the benefit of that was that everyone was just super invested in the project. They really cared about me and Max and they really cared about the music and they showed up and they delivered on things that we asked for because I, I would ask for a lot, but it was all reasonable and gettable. And I would, it just felt like we were on the same team. Yeah. And the best thing about being on the major was, um, the international and global scope of the project. Yeah. I mean, I was touring in Europe like three or four times a year in Australia. It was incredible to all of a sudden just arrive in Germany and meet an entire other company who was also working as hard as the company in New York and working you to radio. And just when you, when I dream about like the best version of how a major label operates and it's like all systems go, I got to live that and see it firsthand with Miss Mister. Yeah. Um, and I felt like they did a really seamless job and it meant that we did really well in some territories and not so well in others. And part of that is just like luck of the draw, yeah. where it fits, where it works. But like, for instance, like Miss Mister was way bigger in Germany and Australia than we were anywhere else in the world. Um, and I, we got to take advantage of that opportunity because we had a major label who was like not stingy about flying us out there and helping us get to festivals and pushing our music to radio to capitalize on the natural support that was already happening. Um, and I still reap the benefits of that support through LPX. Yeah. Um, because I got to spend so much real time there. I mean, I had a conversation with Rob Stringer once who at the time was head of Columbia and he was talking about like the role he believed like a, a major label should play. And he was like, look, He's like, at the end of the day, I think everyone, sh everything should come from the artist and it's all like within your tiny world and you're building it. And we're just the magnifying glass that like comes over the top and blows it up. Doesn't change or alter anything that's happening inside your scope, but we're bringing it like to everyone as loud and as large as possible. And I really felt that way. I felt like they did not get in the way of my creative. They didn't get in the way of the music, but they did like the large magnifying glass mechanics and it was great. It was a really positive experience. What was the decision to kind of step away from Miss Mister and what did that look like? It was very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it was not easy. Because um, I felt like you guys kind of, I don't know, I disbanded. It's not this, you know what I mean. Yeah. You guys um, stepped away from each other kind of at a peak. Or so it seems. That's interesting that you say that. I certainly don't. Well, maybe, maybe. I feel like there, there's, you know, if I'm looking back on in time, second record is tough for every artist, yeah. I think. I think, like, that's, like, a pretty, like, common historical trope in music that people have a hard time with the sophomore record or, like, the curse of the sophomore record. Um, our second record did not do as well as our first record, mm -hmm. um, which was disappointing, more to the label than to us, or at least I should speak for me. Um, and I think the be the beauty of that was I was just um, I was just happy to be in the game. 
Yeah. You know, like truly, yeah, I was like, okay, so we're not getting the same radio support. Like, again, like obviously the label is devastated from a number standpoint, but I was like, I can't believe I'm still playing festival stages and we're touring this much. And like, I really was happy with it from that standpoint. Um, but the second record, not as successful, even though our touring was doing really well. Um, and stepping away from it was... Sorry, just a backtrack. I feel like had we pushed through on the second record and jumped to the third record and pushed through, you know, had we stayed the course, I believe we could have continued to step up our game and evolve and the scope of that project could have grown. But one of the reasons I chose to walk away was I genuinely wasn't sure artistically where we went from the second record. Mm -hmm. And instead of just going through the motions... I decided to take a step back. And around that time, Max had been writing and working with other artists just, you know, for joy and pleasure and to cut his chops as a producer. And he always wanted to produce for other people. And I was super supportive of that. And he's still doing that. I think it's awesome. Um, but Max, to that point, was the only person I'd ever made music with. Um, and we were making electronic pop music, which I fucking love. But we were making that music because of like, our lack of skill outside of building within the computer. Mm -hmm. So as someone who like grew up on like indie rock music, I really wanted to make something that like lived more in that lane. And I didn't see Max and I doing that together just based on what our skill set was and how we operated as a writing duo. Um, So when I separated from Miss Mister, I was like, it's not really about where Miss Mister is, but I feel like in order for me to grow as an artist, I need to move back in time and like cut my teeth on being in the room with different people and getting uncomfortable and seeing how I grow and become a better artist and singer and writer. And I'd like to make something closer to the things that I grew up on. And I'd like to make something on my own. Yeah. And that was a huge part of it because I'd run at that point, like, neon gold with Derek for six years. I was coming out of a five-year, very serious relationship. And I had been in Miss Mister with Max um, for two albums. So it was like, you know, another like five, six years of touring. So I was coming from a series of intense partnerships. And I was like, fuck, I need to stand on my own two feet and see what I am capable of creating when there's no compromise involved. And when I get to call the shots and who am I outside of having a partner in every facet of my life. Was there fear in stepping away from that established platform? Totally. Yeah. I was sort of like, yeah, yeah. It was a gamble. It was a gamble. And I, man, I wish I kept a journal this whole time. (laughs) I don't really, honestly, not to like pat, pat myself on the back, but I don't really know where I got the balls from to do that because it was really scary. Um, I think in general in life, if you handle things, if you're upfront, respectful and honest, mm-hmm. you can pretty much move on to whatever, you know, there's like no harm, no foul, whatever you're going to do. And I yeah. felt like we had handled that conversation with our fans that way. Max and I had handled that conversation. It had been like that, the label And so I just had to go down this path and hope that people were going to grow and evolve with me and that believe in myself and that that was going to work out. Yeah, I talk to a lot of 
I talk to a lot of artists in general. Yeah. Because people tend to come to me for questions that I usually... Because you're great with answers. Because you're, you. you're very logical. Because someone will come with you a question or a complaint, and instead of just being like, oh, man, that sucks, you'll be like, okay, well, I would do A, B, C, and then I would handle it, you know, like you give proactive advice. I'm solution-oriented. Yes. And I think that for, for some people, they view that as blunt and, and I can be mildly unemotional. Mm-hmm. I, I know and love and accept that about yeah, myself, totally. but I'm really good at getting shit done. Yeah, 100%. But I've talked to a lot of artists that, you know, are just starting out their careers, but a surprising number of major label artists who come to me asking what it's like to be independent Yeah, and whether or not they should make that shift. Mm-hmm. And I always tell them, you have to be, it's a completely different game, mm-hmm. right? It is a completely it, it different completely game, different. completely different skill set. And a completely different amount of work. A completely different amount of work. And so I guess if you could give one piece of advice to a major label artist who's mm-hmm. thinking of transitioning to independent, what would that be? Um, that's a really good question. And I'm, I'm trying to think of real life examples that, or people that I've talked to, because I, I I have multiple times. And I think, you know, not to be a broken record, but a lot of the disillusionment in how and where money was spent. When you're in a major label, like, you, you just don't know all the costs, and you're just sort of willy-nilly approving things. But it isn't until you're independent that, like, you're really diving into, like, the economics of what it means to function. Um. And so getting a handle on that, getting a handle on what it looks like to budget and how hard are you willing to work? Like whether you're signed to a major label or not, like it's still a fuck ton of work when you're signed to a major label. Like it's, it's hard in general to be an artist, but you have to be able to be both as an independent artist, like both creative and the person who pragmatically and logically like executes are you going to be able to manage that and or if you're going to hire someone to do that and are you going to be able to manage them or afford them or afford them um how scrappy are you willing to be um are you ready to be as hands-on as humanly possible are you ready to have an understanding of the project across the board um I don't know. I don't, I don't feel like being an independent artist is for the faint of heart or like the lazy, nor do I really think that being an artist is for that anyway. Like, I think you just have, you know, if you really are serious about what you do in any world, like it just takes like patience and perseverance. And if the nitty gritty struggle is going to piss you off so much that it's going to ruin the experience for you, don't do it. Like maybe don't be an artist because I think you have to be a little psychotic and enjoy that because it's, (laughs) because that's a lot of your day to day. Uh Um, And either like you dig that or you don't. Um, And if you don't dig the parts that make it really hard, which it mostly is, then this isn't for you. And that sounds really cold, but I think that's like, that's some good fucking advice. Well, Advice is best served cold, but there is a, like a dose of pragmatic, I don't know, just masochism that goes into mm-hmm. being an artist and you have to be willing to show up. I'm going to be a broken record on this whole podcast and <laughs> I feel like I say it every episode, but being an artist is the highest form of luxury. 
100%. as a career. It is not totally right. Yes, you work hard. Yes, you make sacrifices. But, but you, it is if you enjoy it, then it's not really work because you're like it's all worth it. Yeah, it's I sit and I write my emotions out and I sing and produce them to people, and that's how I make my living. Mm-hmm. Like that is just the ultimate gift. I completely agree. Give me the biggest surprise of like the transition from major to independent, positive and negative. Um, I've really loved, I loved being more hands-on. I'm a control freak. So for me, that's like, that's a total joy. Um, and I don't know necessarily if it's about being independent, but being solo and not being in a duo for the first time in my life has been like a real joy. I've learned so much about myself, like as an artist, as a human being, a and I like how flexible I can be, yeah. you know, like this year, for instance, you know, I, I had an, you know, I had tours in the spring that I was going to put out a 30 P alongside of. And instead of having someone tell me what the release plan throughout the year was going to be, I ended up sort of, I ended up sort of flying by the seat of my pants this year for the most part. You know, I put out three songs. I'm super proud of them. Nothing really went to plan and didn't culminate in the end of the year, how I thought it was going to be, but I did what was manageable and what I was capable of in the pockets of time I was capable of executing this year. Yeah. And I didn't have anyone else breathing down my neck to tell me what was right or wrong. Um, and that felt amazing. And in general, for being an independent artist, I love that when I get a win or something works or like, I can really like hand over heart, be like, wow, I really earned that. And like, that was, that was all me. And it also makes me feel good when something doesn't work. I'm like, okay, well, why didn't it? And there's no one else to blame or turn to. Like, I've got to figure out a better way of doing this in the future. I like that challenge. And I like that accountability. Um, That there's no one to blame for my, but myself. And I get to experiment and be and evolve however I want. I get to make my own plans. Um, I like the element of reaching out to collaborators and being like, I don't have a big budget. So you're either in this, it either works for you or it doesn't, or like you really believe in this. Like I think coming to a project with no money and a scrappy identity, it means that the people who work with you really fucking care and believe in you. It's like sort of like an automatic, like BS meter because no one's giving you time unless they really care about what you're making. I love that. Can we touch on that really quick though? Cause I think my goal with a lot of this is to kind of help newer artists start navigating. And so I'm really interested when you're reaching out to collaborators Mm -hmm. for this project, what do those conversations look like? Like what does the initial reach out look like? And then what does, what do the conversations look like on the business end of like, cool, how are we going to find creative structures to Mm -hmm. make this work? Because, you know, I'm similar to you. It's like, we're trying to limit our upfront expenditures, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, it's, the reach out is very, um, casual, you know, I, I guess I'll talk about the, the music separately, but like, if I'm doing a, like, you know, like a photo shoot or a video or something, I'll just DM people who I follow on Instagram, who I think are amazing. And I'll reach out and I'll start with a compliment. That's earnest because I wouldn't be reaching out unless I didn't love it. Yeah. And I'll message and I'll be like, I love your stuff. I watched X, Y, and Z. And I thought this was really, you know, I'll start a conversation about their work and why I'm a fan and that will open up a door. And 
and I mean it genuinely. And then I'll be like, I'm working on this and you would be an ideal collaborator. And I don't have a lot of money, but you know, do you want me to help you edit? Do you want me to help you build sets? Like I'm willing to be as hands-on as you need me to be as like a co-pilot in this mm-hmm. so that we can bring a vision to life that we're both happy with. Um, and that has worked for me in a lot of situations yeah, on a visual yeah. side. Um, music wise, I, um, similarly will just reach out to people I'm fans of, but I'd say at this point I've sort of locked in sort of like who my like key collaborators are. Yeah. So I'll talk specifically. I work with this guy, Mike Irish, who has a, um, a studio in Greenpoint. Uh, and I absolutely adore this human being. And we've worked together on many, many songs and we've built an incredible rapport and he knows where I'm coming at financially. Um, and he is also like, you know, an up and coming producer who runs a studio, who cares about his bottom line. And there's a real camaraderie between what we build and an element of like, well, if we win, we should both win. And if we lose, we both lose. So I end up not paying or paying a very small advance up front to help cover costs of studio, whatever. And ultimately we end up doing like a really equal split on the publishing, even if I've done more work on one song or he's done one work, you know, we sort of are like, we're going to split as evenly as possible on things that we work so that as things succeed, we will both succeed. And that feels really kind because it feels like we're both investing in one another. Yeah. And those for me in general across the board have been the best collaborators, the people where I'm like, we're going to evolve over time. And this is going to be a long conversation of a collaboration and when, and if something pops or, you know, whatever that means, like we will both share in the benefits of that. And it, sometimes that's a tough pill to swallow because, you know, and I'm sure you've had experience with this. Sometimes I've written a whole video concept, but I'm sharing the credit with someone else or I've written a whole song and, you know, I'm sharing the credit with someone, but I, you know, I feel salty about that. And it's an ego check, but the ego for me is like something I'm willing to sacrifice in it, you know, for everyone to feel like invested in the long haul. Well, I think it's important, you know, again, there, there are levels. So like my first two EPs were both, you know, kind of that 50, 50 Mm -hmm. split kind of partnership. And I found that to be really beneficial. And again, it's like, you're a team, Mm -hmm. you are this core and I think that's like the perfect starting place. Yes. It's funny, my relationship kind of in that circumstance mm-hmm. really kind of like went ablaze, uh-huh. I think, as things progressed. But I think that going back to what you said, if you are upfront and honest and willing to have kind of hard conversations and be respectful about it, you can actually get away with everything. And it's not getting away. It's just like that's that's how you should handle everything. And yeah. then there's really the fallout is not really on you. But I think that's the ultimate. I think there are so many creative ways to collaborate with people Mm -hmm. when you're on a smaller budget and trying to bring in a partner where you can grow and then you develop that sort of trust. And if you win, he wins and and vice versa. And doing that on a song by song basis Mm -hmm. so that there's this idea that, you know, 
And I guess, do you have a production deal with this person or are you just song by song? I, I don't right now. Right now we're song by song. And I wonder if that will change over time, given how much we do. Smart. Like, at least from my perspective, I've seen so many weird production deals. Mm-hmm. And I think that once you get that like longevity factor in there, people get a little strange because mm-hmm. then there becomes like an ownership of, of somebody's art or someone's yeah. project akin to like a label without the bank. Yeah. Right. Without the financial resource, without the investment. Mm-hmm. And so I think that sometimes looking at people or having talked to people who are in production deals, I tend to be like, don't do that. But you, you know, for a song that you're both putting 20 hours into, yeah. split that shit evenly. Totally. I, the production deal thing is hard for me to wrap my head around only Coming from a situation where I was only working with Max for Miss Mister. And yeah. for me, the joy of, or one of the joys of LPX is that I get to experiment with different people for different sounds. And every time I do that, I learn something different about myself. And um, to do a production deal and commit to one person would feel limiting again. Yeah. And you've been there and done And that. I, I guess I've been there. <laughs> yeah. And maybe like, you know, I know a lot of um, artists I've been with you know, one producer for like an album and, you know, they'll, they'll do those like sort of like batches of, for of a commitments pro- for, for, a for a project. Um, but avoiding that, I feel like for the entirety of like LPX or the, you know, I've tried to avoid it for the entirety of like the Verite mm-hmm. project, just because like you said, I'm not ready to get into a relationship with someone. Totally. Especially when the relationship you're building is with yourself. Yeah. And the whole reason that, you know, and I'll speak for myself that I remain independent is for that independence and autonomy Mm -hmm. and the ability to quickly pivot if something doesn't work because more times than not, it doesn't work. Yes. I would say nine times out of 10, whatever I'm doing is not working. Totally. Totally. I, I don't feel dissimilar. Like, but then but then it's a nice thing to be like, okay, well, what are, I, what are the things I care about working and what does working mean and how does that translate to me, you know? Yeah. Um, like, I, it used to really bother me. I used to really care about, like, year-end lists. Like, I, you know, obviously, like, grew up in, like, the blogosphere times and Miss Mister, like, we were lucky. Like, we got, like, a lot of love for those, like, album and album lists or song of the year lists, all that stuff. And as LPX, it's like, just, I'm not even close to those conversations because I, I'm in such a niche place. And as Miss Mister went on, it would bother me as we like felt ignored or cut out. And now with LPX, I just don't care. Like, yeah. Cause to me, that's no longer a sign of it working or, or not working because I feel so committed to the group of people of fans and audience who do really care. Yeah. Um, And that shift in perspective feels like really good. And I feel like the longer you're with the project, the more you constantly get to like redefine like the things that feel really like validating and working of a project, you know? Yeah. How do you feel you cater to your fan base and like communicate with them? And what do you feel like is the most beneficial mode of communication and interaction with them? I... For better or for worse, and I have no idea how this, I mean, this sounds so silly to say, I don't know how my relationship to my audience of fans like works on a scale as like a much bigger artist. Like I take a lot of joy in the fact that I have a pretty intimate relationship with like my fans. I treat everyone like a friend. That's probably like maybe like a little 
dangerous or like not everyone has the time, but like I answer every single Instagram message, like DM, Twitter, like that's how I communicate with everyone. And it's one-on-one and it's personalized and it feels sacred and I really honor it. And I've seen a lot of these kids like grow up since Miss Mister to LPX and maybe they were in high school and then they were in college and now they're like having their first relationship and living in a new city. Like I know a lot of these people and that feels really special. I don't know as you get like bigger, how you maintain that. Like it makes me a little, it it makes me not want a certain level of success to be totally honest. Cause I really enjoy that intimacy, especially then when you go to a play a show and you're like, you see people that you've seen for four shows at a time. Like, I think that's so special and magic. I'm so like deeply grateful for support. Um, and I feel like my fans are really creative and I haven't had a negative experience that has like tainted that level of community or intimacy. Yeah. So I feel really lucky. Um, I want to give them as much as they're giving me. So even, even something like, you know, I just did this merch competition to do like LPX designs. And for me to just be the vessel and platform for which to share the stuff that they're creating, having never done that before was amazing. Like I couldn't believe the level of talent. I couldn't believe, I was just blown away by what these people were creating. And then the level of intimacy and conversation and emails that we were exchanging about references and other people that we adore, like just opened up this whole other lane of conversation and world. And I just, I hope my relationship with my audience like continues to be that like organic and symbiotic where like we're the snake eating its tail and we just like continue to feed each other in like the same feed loop. Um, Cause I really get off on that. Like it, it's really rad. It's like super inspiring to me. Some of those designs were brilliant. Insane. Like, like truly mind blowing, I think. And there, you know, I had to write a lot of, and I'm handwriting each late, like email. I'm not copying and pasting. I had like, took me two full days to get through all the submissions. Like, I didn't even know that so many of these people were even my fans. I've never had that level of engagement in something ever. Yeah. Um, and I just couldn't believe, like, I know I showed a lot of work, but there's so much more. It's crazy. I hope that people found their work and they get hired to do other things. Like, definitely people I would recommend to other artists now in the future when they're looking for design work and things. Um, and I'm more and more interested in that world anyway. Yeah. So it's really cool to see that that's something that exists within this fan base. I Do you feel like, what's the word? You know, when you just have the word and it just goes, yeah. <laughs> do you feel like your relationship with your Miss Mr. fans mm-hmm. was this, or do you feel like transitioning to being independent has given you a different perspective of on loyalty to these people? That's a great question. I think you're totally right in that it's actually in transitioning to LPX that's completely shifted how close I am with fans because I'm just the level of appreciation is so high, my end. And it's not that I didn't want to do that with Miss Mister, but honestly, it was a lot more challenging because we were two people. So it became really hard to navigate how to both build a relationship with one person at a time. Yeah. Um, so in terms of like technology, like we, 
you know, Instagram, we were like, we were using Instagram, but that even wasn't like at like the height even that it is now. So like we'd answer people, but it it just wasn't the same. Um, the relationship with the audience really grew after, after every show we played, we'd go stand by merch. Yeah. And we'd stand there, you know, for hours. And I loved that. I mean, you know, you're dead tired from having just played a show and soundtrack and traveling all day. Like it's, you know, it's, it's rough. And I'm nervous about my voice, but I, you know, I, I genuinely love people. Like I'm, I'm an extrovert. Like I get my energy from people. So I loved standing there all night and meeting people. Max didn't. Um, and not because he doesn't love people and he's not a beautiful human. It's just, that's not like where he gets his juice. Yeah. Um, and so the relationship we had with our fans with, was just so different because it felt like I had to manage like Max's relationship with them in addition to my own. Um, and I thrived in a, in a physical, like real space and he didn't. So that was really complicated. So it has definitely changed with LPX. I think that, and this is just a complete side note, but the post-show merch table hang Mm -hmm. It's a lot. It's, so, it's a lot, but it's so important. I mean, yes. even the number of times, because I'm, you know, so conscious of my voice on mm-hmm. tour. And every tour I hit a point where, like, I need to be on vocal totally. rest if I'm not singing. The amount of times I've announced, I will be there, I will not speak to you, and we can have an awkward mime. And, like, those are almost my most fond memories. Oh, because totally. it's this awkward interaction where they don't really believe me, and then yeah. they get there, and yeah. I'm like, I can't like me just motioning and doing all of this crazy stuff. You know, you, you see people who show up to mm-hmm. every show or travel. Like I did my- The travel is crazy. The travel is crazy. I did my album release show and people flew in yeah, for it. Yeah, you're like, wow. Like it was their vacation. <laughs> and this was like, you know, it was a small show at Babies. Yeah. And this sense of, oh, wow, I owe you guys everything. Yeah. Like I owe you guys everything. And I think- this idea of like, yeah, I need to meet my bottom line and I need to, you know, build a business that's sustainable, mm-hmm. et cetera. But, you know, you can't do that at the expense of these lovely, brilliant humans who, you know, them buying my merch this year has helped me so much. Yeah. And somebody just did an unboxing of my merch on YouTube and it's the most pure, genuine thing. And it's like, oh, this is what keeps me going. And I think that sometimes when you're in these top down streaming, you know, yeah. big investment, mm-hmm. big playlisting, you're totally missing out on that foundation. And that level of community is just so special. Like it's really, it's really the best part. And it's why I love touring because I think it's so easy in isolation and looking at your bottom line and logistics and looking at numbers on the screen, like it, it can become so foreign. Yeah. And it's when you're in the room with real people and you're at the merch table or you're performing a show and people are singing with you where you're like, this comes to life. Like everything about my project was 2D and now everything is like 8D. Like it's just everything is turned on and right where it should be. And it's why I have very little time for anyone who is entitled or arrogant about like what they think they have or like don't have to do for their fans. Um, I just think that's bullshit. Like- it just irritates me so, so aggressively. Um, that relationship is everything. That relationship is everything. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before is how scrappy are you willing to mm-hmm. be? How much time are you willing to put into this? Yeah. Because, I mean, I can literally say that my manager has had to come, like, pull me from the merch table. Yes. Because I'm Ditto. there. Totally. And she'll 
come over and tap me on the shoulder and be like, okay, if you're staying, you have to stop talking. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's, and I'll stay. Yeah. And I think that there's this sense of, yeah, you have to put in that time and that time, there's no way around it. And I think that people maybe try and skip vital steps and are always looking to maybe skip one step. Mm -hmm. And I think that- And sometimes it's the money that confuses that. You know, makes well, them think they're on another level or something. Makes the, it's that that I don't know. Yeah, it's it's entitlement and privilege and like you know false promises mm-hmm. of of grandeur essentially. But I guess I want to touch on this before we end because it's funny. Like you, you've always been a, a tastemaker of sorts. I remember like desperately wanting to be on Neon Gold right <laughs> when I started like. Being like, shit, if I just get noticed by them, right? Because you guys were just such cool tastemakers. And essentially, in a in a world of albums, kind of pre-streaming, mm-hmm. you know, in the time of the blogosphere, yeah. you guys kind of re-revolutionized, like, the singles game and the importance of, like, here's a song. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that has been a precursor to where we live now, which is essentially this full pivot to a single culture. Yeah. yeah, yeah. As LPX, what do you put your weight in? Is it single a single-driven project? Is it an album-driven project? Are you kind of toggling between the two? For me, I've had this game plan from the beginning because I've been so self-aware of what an experiment and, like, constantly evolving project LPX is as I like continue to find my footing and like experiment in different pockets of my taste. So my plan from the beginning was to do three EPs and then put out an album. Um, in my mind, that was sort of like half made up of songs from the three EPs and half new songs that like built together this final world. Um, and so to this point, I've been operating, operating under like creating bodies of work from which I then pull the singles out. But I think like, I ultimately think about it as, as a, as a grouping, as a whole. Um, and this year definitely feels super weird having only put out three singles and not the body of work that they come from. Um, because it leans towards more like playing the singles game than, um, the project as like a a clump, which is like such an ugly way (laughs) of putting it. Yeah. Um, and I really, Dislike that because there's a level of like body that's missing from these appendages that like, I don't really, it's just, it's unfulfilling to me as an artist. Yeah. And I'm really excited to honestly get the EP out. I hope very early at the beginning of next year so that like this chapter is sort of finished and that body of work makes sense and move into album mode. Um, And I definitely think, I definitely think, think of things as a whole, as an album. I love like I love the singles game because I like like the campaign identity of like how do you build yeah the unfolding of a project like I'm really into that. I'm really excited about diving into album mode and I think it's going to be very different than what I ever preconceived it was going to be to this point and I'm glad I've allowed myself the opportunity of creating within these batches as the EPs exist because they all make sense as individual things. And I I always say, like, I don't think you really know who an artist is until they triangulate. Yeah. Like, you need three points of reference to understand, like, what's in the middle of something, which is why I've been so bound to, like, the three EP before the album identity. Yeah. Because I think each EP is, like, pretty 
different, but only when they come. It's gonna make it's gonna make sense when someone hears the album. Um. And yeah, now I think the album's gonna be like just not not what I expect of myself and not what my fans expect. And it's I'm just really excited about how it's gonna come together. And I'm excited about diving into it as a body because I think it's more fun to create when you're thinking about how many pieces become one thing versus creating a little like nuggets of isolation. Just like not as satisfying to me. I mean, it's also the world for your fans to step into. Yeah. And I think that concept is so smart that you need, you know, three pillars to kind of triangulate what 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 does live in the mm-hmm. middle and especially redefining yourself from somebody who has been so defined by like co-founder of Neon mm-hmm. Gold and co-founder mm-hmm. of Ms. Mister. And now this is like founder yeah. of, of LPS. Yeah. I guess we're nearing the end, the the sunset of the conversation, <laughs> as I as I enjoy saying. <laughs> When you're looking at the challenges of the algorithm Mm -hmm. and the challenges of the new gatekeepers that have come up, right? We Mm -hmm. were looking at major labels and and essentially access to radio was the original gatekeeper, the OG. And now we're looking at streaming platforms and DSPs as the new gatekeepers. How are you trying to play the game? Mm Mm-hmm. And then how are you trying to circumvent the system entirely? I, another beautiful question, Kelsey. (laughs) I feel like I often struggle with where I fit in sonically, age-wise, media-wise. Like I feel like a little bit between the cracks of so many things. And maybe I've always felt that way my whole life between even down to, you know, like being too, like, American for England and being too English for, like, I, yeah. Neon Gold, we like things that were too pop for, like, the indie alt, but too indie alt for top 40. And I live in these just awkward in-between spaces and cracks. And so now when I think about, like, what do I need to do to play the game? What do I need to do for myself? How do I navigate, like, the systems that, like, are meaningful to me? I feel like I'm taking a lot of inspiration from the systems that are in place and ultimately trying to create something that is so earnestly myself and something that brings me so much joy in the process, I don't care as much whether it um, wins in these lanes or not. I, I guess I'm, yeah. I don't know if I really answered your question, but like- You did in a way. I just, you know, something like a, a for instance, like TikTok- I, I think TikTok is really interesting and I really dig how it's changing people's ideas of like song format, song lengths, um, lyricism, um, certain like sonic references. Like it's interesting to me how mediums are shifting like the creative structure. I'm a 32 year old woman. I'm not going to get on TikTok and do like the in-between dances. Um, I'm not going to be creating meme culture. It's just, it's just not, it's disingenuous. Yeah. Um, And so I love looking at something like that to consider as I think about and conceptualize the next world that I'm building for this album, how do I take the parameters of something like that and do it in a way that is entirely unique and different to me so that I'm doing it, whether it like goes or not, it just feels like a really earnest extension of myself and what I'm creating as opposed to like... And now I have a TikTok because I felt like I just had to do this because everyone's doing, you know what I mean? Like constantly 
making those things fun challenges as opposed to like annoying extra bits because they do feel sometimes like annoying extra bits when it's just like not naturally maybe how like your brain monopolizes or conceptualizes um, a song or an album or a video, you know, whatever it is. Um, but starting to use it as like a fun prompt. Yeah. I, that's really interesting because it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before, you know, as independent artists and creators, essentially it's our ship. Mm-hmm. Right. And so our, it's our ship. If we have success, we get to own that a hundred percent. Nobody else gets to really take credit for that. It's like, we are the captain. Mm-hmm. And then if you hit an iceberg, you, you hit an iceberg and you yeah. also have to, you know, manage that and, and figure out how to pivot. And I think that at least for myself, this idea of, well, if I'm, if I'm not going to be successful or if something's not going to hit, mm-hmm. I need to be able to sleep at night knowing that yes. it's mine. Yes. Versus. That's everything, I think. Yeah. Because- and if you made something you loved, you can be disappointed that not enough people are listening to it because you think it's fucking fire. But you can sleep at night because you're like, well, damn, I don't regret anything about creating that. Yeah. And I think we see so often music that has all this backing and is playing the mm-hmm. algorithm game and, you know, has the whatever, the right form mm-hmm. not do well. Totally. Right. And so you realize it is all, it's, it's a game of two things, right? One, there is no substitution for all of the absolute hard work that you have to put mm-hmm. in and, and the foundation that you need to lay. And it takes as long as it takes. Yes. And then and maybe more. it never takes, but did you enjoy the process? Yeah, exactly. Like, I think my greatest takeaway from this year that will dictate how I operate in anything for the rest of time is how much genuine joy does something bring me? And letting joy be like sort of the guiding force um, and letting that be the barometer of how or why I'm making something. And I feel like it's even just like more recently adopting like that philosophy or at least being like more cognizant of it. Obviously, like I'm a pretty joy forward human being, Um, but choosing to enjoy the struggle, choosing to enjoy the challenges, choosing to not be stressed out over the eight vocal takes I've done and just be like, well, this is what it is. And I'm so grateful and happy that I get to spend time with this person and we're going to get it. And if we don't like just bringing a certain level of levity and patience and and joy to the process, enjoying it all, I think is going to change the scope of what my future looks like and what the scope of this project looks like. Yeah. I mean, that to me feels like a metric for success, right? It's like, if, if, if we can build things where we feel joy and where we feel purpose. Yes. And we can make it a living, Mm -hmm. right. Then, you know, that has to be enough. Yeah. And anything else is just a delusion. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it doesn't, I mean, it's a struggle, but you better enjoy the struggle. Well, yeah. If you're looking to start an independent project, you better enjoy the struggle. Yeah. Enjoy the challenges (laughs) and good luck and perseverance and patience and time. Resilience. Resilience and get scrappy. Sick. Everyone's fucking capable. Yeah. But do you have it in you? Or do you want it? Or do you want it? Yeah. Life also doesn't have to be this hard. I, I know a <laughs> it's lot a of choice, people dude, who don't you know? want to do what I do. We, we, what is it? We live to work a little bit. 
my whole identity is where it's it's totally like we are wrapped in every element of our being is wrapped up in what we're creating and what we do and who we are as artists. And, and there's an entire other sect of people who work to live and they just go to work nine to five and, you know, they get through the day and then they get to spend their downtime and free time doing all the things that they love. And it's, that's a totally fair and beautiful way of operating. It's just not what I know. Um, and you should just choose the right thing for you. And there's no shame or shade in choosing either path. Yeah. But I definitely am like, I'm on this one. Oh yeah. There's no going back. No, I, no, no. I'm fucked. And what's like, what's the line? Like, I didn't work this hard only to get this far. Yeah, probably. I just, I love that. It's like, yeah, okay. Keep going. Keep going. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for, for having me. Damn. <laughs> Anatomy of an Artist is a podcast created, recorded, and edited by me, Verite. It was produced by Vanessa Magos with the help of Yesenia Bonilla. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.